I'm Kyle Savin. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to the examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. It's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 62, we read Conservative, Knowing What to Keep by Jim DeMint and Rachel Bovard, published this year, 2020. And joining us to discuss the book today is co-author Rachel Bovard. Welcome. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yes, Rachel, welcome. So you and I have a history. We work together on the Hill, and I've I've known you as, as one of the, the sharpest and most, let's say, aggressive staffers and very effective at what you do. <laughs> so it's a very was... kind assessment. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was delighted to see that you'd written this book and I'm excited to have you join us. So thanks for coming. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you, how did you get to the point where you are now to write the book and work with Senator DeMint and so forth? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. Um, Corey, as you point out, we we did work together um, in the Senate. And I actually spent 10 years on Capitol Hill, pretty evenly split between the House and the Senate. Um, ended up you know, as Rand Paul's legislative director and then went to work for the Senate Steering Committee, which is the caucus of the most conservative senators in the Senate. I was the policy director there under um, the chairman's chairmanships of Pat Toomey and then Mike Lee. Um, so rounded out that part of my career, uh, was briefly at the Heritage Foundation for about a year before we left to start the Conservative Partnership Institute. Myself, Senator Jim DeMint, um, Ed Corrigan, and Wesley Denton, all old Senate hands as well. Um, so we started that in 2017, and um, we've been hopping along there pretty pretty well. And then I also run a group called the Internet Accountability Project, which is a group focused on raising concerns about big tech from the conservative perspective. So the book came about as a joint project, as you point out, between myself and Senator DeMint. It was actually Senator DeMint's idea. Um, he came to me and said, hey, you know, I'm really interested in doing a book about sort of reinterpreting, you know, a foundational thinker in conservatism for this modern moment. And at first I thought he was asking me to ghostwrite it. <laughs> and he he said, no, no, like we should do it together. You know, I really want sort of the perspective of the younger millennial conservative and sort of his perspective being sort of a boomer type conservative, as he would call himself. Um, and so it was a joint project between the two of us. And, you know, I think you definitely get a feel for um, his his you know, what concerns him, what concerns me. And, and it was a project that we worked on together. And I was really appreciative of the opportunity to to work with him. Um, we did write it ourselves, which I think is unusual a little bit in this city, but we're really proud of it. Very nice. So yeah, I actually uh, was interested when I, when I started reading, I, I guess I, we'll talk about this in a few minutes here, but based on the, the work that you've done in the past and Senator DeMint's uh, reputation and so forth, I it was a little bit different of a book than I expected. I thought it was going to be a little edgier, but uh, it was a little <laughs> more of a, like you say, a restatement of of Kirk and uh, an, an update for for the contemporary times or whatever. So that was really interesting. But so let's dive in. What uh, what's your book about, and what is it that we need to keep? 
Yeah. So like you said, it really is sort of a, a restatement of, I think, traditionalist conservatism, right? When you think about Russell Kirk, he is a traditionalist, so sort of in the same line as Edmund Burke. And, you know, what we wanted to do was sort of reapply a lot of his original thought, because I think when you think about conservatism in this moment in particular, I think a lot of people are saying, well, what what do conservatives actually believe? What it is? What is it that they want? What does it mean to be conservative? So that was a problem that we were trying to solve by, I think, reapplying a lot of older principles. When you read Russell Kirk, he can be a little bit dense, I think, for a modern audience. And so we were trying mm-hmm. to sort of take, you know, what uh, the best parts of of his work and sort of reapply them. But I think that the the biggest thing, you know, when I was studying Kirk to take away is that. I think a lot of times conservatism is sort of described as this almost ideal, an almost an ideology or like a dogma that's very rigid and inflexible, and you know it's a set of policy prescriptions. And conservatism really is not those things. And I think in the first chapter in particular, I tried to point this out that by by making the point that conservatism is is not it's not a dogma; it's actually a disposition. It's a way of living. It's a way of looking at the world. And what are those things that are important about? you know, living together in community. And one of those things is preserving the community, um, preserving what Burke called the little platoon. So like the ability of the, you know, individual family uh, in relation to its community to make decisions for itself and that kind of political liberty. But also I think, you know, more broadly, uh, you know, caring for, you know, society as a whole. And that looks different in every generation. And Kirk Kirk recognized that. He said it's incumbent upon every generation to sort of reinterpret conservatism for that time. And so that's kind of what we were trying to do is say, what is it about our moment, you know, that conservatism can impact the most? And I think that's a very, uh, on, it's, a, it's a critical and ongoing conversation, I think, in the Trump era. So that's sort of a broad description of what we were trying to do. And that really squares with a lot of what we were trying to do with this podcast, too, just, you know, what is conservatism? It's, I think, something a lot of a lot of us on the right were asking ourselves in 2016 and 2017, you know, what things are changing, things are realigning, where do we go from here? And I, I think a lot of people are really sort of rediscovering Kirk and, and the broader Burkean uh, tradition within conservatism. And it, it seems to come up again and again uh, in, in the recent books we've read that's sort of drifting away from the more libertarian angles to conservatism and not necessarily abandoning them not you know because we we all still think the pursuit of liberty is important but i mean why why do you think it is that that these days we are looking more to that burkean tradition which was you know maybe the the back seat of conservatism for a while and now it's now it seems like it's getting in the driver's seat <laughs> yeah i think you know there definitely is a critique of of sort of the fusionism that's driven the right i think for probably the last 50 years to some extent, which I think has really emphasized, because when you think about fusionism, which is traditionally described as sort of social conservatism aligned with economic libertarianism, aligned with sort of this neocon foreign policy element, I think a lot of traditional conservatives would say, well, we've overemphasized the neocon and the economic libertarian side of this stool, and we've neglected sort of that social traditional conservatism, and people are starting to see uh, the effects of that. And so I think you're almost seeing within the right, uh, the pendulum swinging back, I think, toward that traditional conservatism that has, a, to your point, been in the back seat a little bit. And I think, you know, from where I sit, I think there's a number of areas you could point this out, but from where I sit, I see a lot 
this a lot in how the right has treated corporate power for the last 50 years, which is to say they've generally deferred to it as sort of a function of the free market, a function of private industry that the government should, you know, enhance by leaving alone. Right. And this is this sort of conflates with the work I do in big tech, because I do think that there has been a sort of creep over time toward these mass, the growth of these massive mega corporations who have benefited from the government. Right. Like mm-hmm. they've benefited from the deregulatory environment. They've benefited from special carve outs or treatments from the government, but they've become so large and so powerful and very dominant over aspects of our lives that you have a situation now where a, a, a mega corporation can be a threat to individual liberty, where before we would say that just about the government. And so I think that that's just one small area that I see as a proxy for this larger conversation that we're having on the right, which is to say, it's all a matter of emphasis, right? We've emphasized Mm -hmm. neocon wars. We've emphasized economic libertarianism for so long. Does traditional conservatism, which looks at sort of society as a whole, right? And it looks, it's, you know, it, it, it uses broad principles that should shape our public policy and how we live together. You know, prudence um, is one, private property, accumulated tradition, diffusion of power, a strong civil society. These are all the things that, that traditional conservatism says we should emphasize. Should we be emphasizing that more in our public policy and less of what we've been doing for the last 50 years, which was that neocon economic libertarian argument? So not to sort of divorce it from the party, but just emphasize it a little bit less in relation to our public policy. Those are some really good insights. And you, you start you start off your discussion of what to keep with uh, keeping our faith. That's chapter two. And I, I wanted to ask you about this because this is a conversation that we've had many times over, over the last couple of years on the podcast is you say, uh, you quote um, Russell Kirk is saying, uh, belief in a transcendent order must be the first tenet of a free society and the most essential pillar of conservatism. And you say religion is essential to keeping everything we all care about. And I, I think Kyle and I would agree with that. But in in our contemporary sort of secular society, and it's you know fewer people going to church now, again, that uh, trend may very well like flip itself anytime. But, but in our contemporary situation, this is a question that's been on my mind for, for quite some time and we've discussed, which is, does conservatism do, does it, does it require religion? I mean, do, do you have to be, is, is there a conservatism of secularism too? I mean, I don't know what you think about that. And, and, and I know you're, uh, I think you're Catholic, right? So we'd love to hear your, your thoughts on all that and, and the, the importance of it and whether or not there's the, the future of conservatism must re- have sort of religion as a, at the core or, or not, or I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. You know, Kirk definitely emphasized what he called a moral order, which was not necessarily, you know, had to be, I think, framed as a religious order. But I do think what Kirk was getting at was this sort of reference to a higher ideal, right? A reference to someone else in control, a reference to, um, you know, norms and standards of behavior from a higher notion of what is good, I think that, you know, and practically speaking, right, this works out in the fact that religion makes people good citizens, right? Any religion, really. Anything that sort of acts as a governor for your behavior, right? You can say that that could be sort of fear of social opprobrium, right? That's a governor of your behavior. But I think when you when people appeal to sort of an eternal sense, you know, it, it sort of permeates their worldview in ways that I think are actually beneficial to society. So is religion a requirement? Not necessarily, but I think religion most accurately reflects 
the qualities that make people, I think, good citizens. Because I think when you have just an increasingly secular society, you just have no, everything becomes relative to some extent. You have this sort of creeping nihilism I think, that, that, that sets into a society that breaks down slowly the, or, the social order, but I think has, has lasting effects. You, you know, religion, at least my religion as a Catholic, teaches me to treat people with dignity. It, tre- it, it teaches me to, treat, to see God in other people, right? That we're all made in the image of God. And so therefore, how I interact with you, how I, I treat you, that is all reflected from a, a, a faith that I hold very dear. And so, but more broadly speaking, the more you have people you have like that, right, the stronger your social bonds are. And so I don't think he, Kirk would, would cling to like one religion over another, but I think he would say, you know, yeah, moral, moral order, uh, an, an appeal to moral order is important in making a society last. Because I think you can't, society can't survive when everything is just relative. And, 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 you know, at the end, you have a bunch of secularists, like, appealing to nihilism as a justification for everything going to hell. Like, you just can't, mm-hmm. it just doesn't sustain. No, I, I totally agree. It reminds me of what the um, Presbyterian minister, Tim Keller, said. that if, if your God never disagrees with you, you might be just worshiping an idealized version of yourself. I, th- I think I think that's I think that's part of the moral order that 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 Kirk is talking about is that it, there has to be an appeal beyond what you think is right today. You know, there has to be something that we're, and it uh, it would be great if more people were look on the same page. But there's always going to be diversity in that in that moral order. But you know what? And we'll we'll turn to your opinions on diversity. I think soon because I thought that was a really interesting chapter. But just to get to that get back to the the moral order i th- i think the um what it brings us and it's usually has to be god-centered um is that if you've got a an external locus for your values then it it's we have to adhere to them you know i mean there's no there's no sl- slipping and sliding around it, it as there would be if it if all you're really basing your moral values on is you know what you think today what you think the best version of you is because everybody's got a different version of that um yeah it kind of relates a little bit to what i think kirk says about tradition too mm -hmm. which is that you know well he talks about it in the phrase accumulated tradition what you know which is that we appeal to what's been done before and not in a way that doesn't allow change but just in a way that's like though there is continuity to the people that have gone before us their lived and learned experience should teach us something so you know we appeal to that history we appeal to that tradition in the same way that we appeal to a higher moral order all of these things put the individual in context and they give the individual they make the individual a little bit smaller right and and Mm -hmm you know, in a way that I think is actually useful because I think you see a lot of this whole culture of, um, that we see now, which is very individualistic, which is that, you know, I live my truth or like, (laughs) you know, whatever I wake up today is, is how I'm going to be. And I'm, you know, I have to be able to do, it's it's the self-actualization that I just think isn't sustainable. And it's a very egocentric, like to use the Freudian term, you know, the id, right? It governs mm-hmm. everything. And, and there is no sort of broader context for any action or any decision. And I ultimately think that, you know, man can't live that way. I think you just sort of spiral your way into distraction at that point, you know, without sort of grounding yourself in, you know, profound fundamental truth and sort of the history of those who have gone before you. I think those are things that build strong societies. And I think that's kind of what Kirk is getting at. 
Yeah, and I mean, if you don't have a found, if if your meaning isn't founded in something greater than yourself, then I think what we're seeing today is people are seeking meaning in politics, and it's one of the reasons that that political arguments are no longer about policy preferences. Instead, it's about life or death, and and this is metaphysical absolute truth. But I think that your your discussion in on keeping our differences was really interesting on this in this regard too, because there's a lot of rethinking of well, particularly like this, uh, like the first things like Catholic folks that are like Patrick Deneen and, and, and J.D. Vance have been very interesting on a lot of this stuff. But when it comes to conservatives are really appreciate uh, individualism, sort of in the economic sphere where and in the free market and liberals, on the other hand, or their focus on individualism obviously is on individual rights and making sure that everyone has each identity can have be recognized according to the way that that person or or identity wants to be recognized and and so i was going to ask you you say conservatives put the individual at the center of our society culture and economics and at the same time we have a conversation about you also have a conversation about how important it is to have have communities and to be to be based and founded in in good strong communities and I think that conservatism right now is sort of working through those two things. And I wonder, I wonder if you could give us your thoughts on that. How, how, how do you see that playing out? How do you, how do you see that, that push and that pull that, that, that tug and that push as far as holding the individual as the, as the center of political society while at the same time having a, is there a government role or at least a societal role in trying to f- focus on building communities? What do you think? Yeah, I think there's two things going on here, sort of two spheres that are sort of operating next to each other. I think on one hand, you know, you have conservatives who sort of the pendulum has swung, I think, for them a little bit in the sense that, you know, it used to be liberals who were like, just live and let live, you know, like, (laughs) leave me alone kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. And it swung so far in the other direction because the left is now trying to control every single element of society, right, to the extent that you know, they want, they will, if you, if you don't want to recognize 57 genders, you will be forced to recognize 57 genders because if not, you're a bigot, right? Right. You can't, you know, Amazon doesn't allow you to donate to family research council. Banks are no longer doing business with, you know, ICE uh, and and anyone who works at the border. Uh, Bank of America won't finance your gun transaction. Like, so I think you're seeing a situation where conservatives do feel sort of existentially threatened by the cultural institutions that they feel are just allied against them. And so I think you're actually seeing conservatives say no, say now, whoa, you know, like we, we do need to be allowed to think differently. We do need to be allowed to, you know, live our faith because a lot of times this comes down to religious differences, right? Um, You know, people want to, you had, you had the Obama administration suing a group of nuns because they didn't want to buy birth control because it violated their Catholic faith, right? That is the type of behavior the left now um, aggresses toward toward the right, and so I think you have a lot of conservatives saying, "Look, this is this is a society we live in. We have to have individual differences. We are not all going to believe the same. We are all not all going to be the same. We all have different gifts and abilities that manifest themselves in different ways. That is actually okay." Um, and but I think the second thing that you're pointing to is sort of the the Deneen, um sort of Catholic integralism argument, and I think that's almost a separate question in the sense that. You know, you have a lot of conservatives saying now, well, for a long time, we have not, you know, said that the government should have any role in sort of shaping the social order, 
that should be left up for sort of communities, local communities, and you know, individual families, which I actually think is true. But the left has not agreed to that. And so they have slowly over the last 20 or 25 years been building the cult, not, not just the cultural institutions, but using government power to sort of reshape society in the way they want to live. And so I think you're seeing a lot of conservatives say, well, we have power too. When we have political power, should we use it to shape society in the order in the way that we want to see it? And so I think ultimately that sort of Deneen discussion is more about the use of of how conservatives should use government power if they should at all. And I think that's unsettled. That's a very um robust debate, as you sort of alluded to. Um, what because do you I think? do think well, I think there are there are dangers there, right? I think the useful thing about the fusionist three-legged stool is that whenever one you you know for traditional conservatives who get in that element, usually there's libertarians there to sort of put guardrails on it, right? I don't think it's a bad mm-hmm. discussion to have, right? Because for instance, look at look at the big tech debate. Like, do I think that we should use political power to rein in these companies who are more powerful than the government? I absolutely do. Because the government has already given them so many privileges. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, but, you know, the libertarians are there to say, well, okay, well, what are the, what are the you know, consequences to that? Although increasingly outside of DC, I rarely find any libertarian who thinks that we, <laughs> big tech isn't a problem. It's just the ones in DC who think it's fine. Mm. But so I think that, you know, that, it, you know, I see where they're coming from in the sense that we have allowed, the right has allowed the left to have so much sort of political power and use it so aggressively that we are now living at a time where, you know, Everything we do is political, to your point. Me going to mass is political. It's, I'm making a political statement about how I think about other people. That's how the left views these things. And so I do think the right does need to come up with a response to that. And I don't think we have one currently. And I think that's why you're seeing so much discussion over this, because it's an unsettled question. And one that honestly goes against you know the, the prevailing modes of behavior for the right for the last 30 or so years. But if we're going to survive... It's a discussion we need to have, and I and I do think the way in which we interact with the left and the way we interact with government power is probably going to change. I think that's a that ends up being a great argument for fusionism, even if it involves shifting a little bit which which part is emphasized. But that is a good point because I I don't think we see that on the other side. I think whatever whatever makes up the progressive coalition, there isn't there isn't enough tension to say hold back. I mean, there are, we hear about left libertarians, but I don't know that there are enough of them to make a difference, you know, but what, what, what you were saying there about, um, just, yeah, they're putting guardrails on each other is a, a good reason to, uh, to keep doing what we're doing, you know, in, in terms of fusionism. And I think that it, it was, people talk about it like it's an alliance of convenience, but, uh, I, I kind of do believe that Frank Mayer's point that the the two sides need each other and they have more in common with each other than they have with the opposition. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think it's been difficult for sort of the allied interests, um, you know, toward libertarian, the economic libertarianism. I think that that has hurt sort of traditional and social conservatism. Mm -hmm. So I get why there's frustration there because I think you, you know, for a long time you've had this sort of chamber of commerce Republican who has, you know, relied on, you know, libertarians to be like, yeah, any government involvement in anything is bad. So give the corporations whatever they want. Right. You know, and it's been at the expense of, I think, sort of traditional conservatives feel like they've been left behind to some extent. You know, it's allowed those policies to take front and center, whereas, you know, it's allowed the Congress in the Senate in particular to have one pro-life vote a year, Mm -hmm. you know, and for that to be all they get. And 
so I think there's there needs to be I think a frank and candid discussion, you know, because after and and I don't, I think that's healthy no matter the outcome because after a while when you keep doing the same thing over and over, interests become entrenched, you know, the room becomes yep. very stale, and so I think what I'm seeing on the right right now is more dynamic and robust intellectual activity than I've seen in the entire 14 years that I've worked in Washington. And, you know, it's unfriendly sometimes, um, which is a shame, but I do think it's going to be very helpful going forward because this type of self-reflection, if a party is going to survive and if a political theory and philosophy is going to survive is absolutely necessary. Otherwise it ossifies into dogma and it shatters, you know, in its own brittle state. So I'm very encouraged by what I see. I think that's a really great point and really is an undercurrent that folks who are not paying attention are probably going to miss that there is such, such interesting and rich conversation happening because that's not obviously what we're seeing on, not, not, not seeing a ton of that on, on Fox news or on Twitter, let's say, for example, and any cable news channel, I mean, give me a break, but so many of these interesting conversations are happening. And uh, Kyle and I just did an episode too, our, our last one that we just put out was a little change of pace. And we, we talked about, uh, he had written an article on how the coalition, the party coalitions are changing and, uh, how Trump might, might get up to 40% potentially of, of the Hispanic vote. And obviously the, what used to be the core of the new deal coalition, white working class, the forgotten man are really sort of moving in droves to the Republican party and, uh, union members and so forth. And, I wonder how you think that the interplay of that and and this this conversation that's going on and also maybe the the stiff arm that that libertarians are getting right now. Uh, how do you think that uh, the the demographics and the change in the in the coalitions is playing at all? Have, I don't know if you've given that any thought. Well, I think this is sort of the very practical side of the of the realignment that's going on in the Republican Party. You know, we talk about it like it's all intellectual, and it is, and, it, and a big part of it. But it's also really practical. It's the Republican Party needs to know how to respond to what is its new base. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we, it used to be the, primarily the country club Republican, and while those people still exist, to your point, like the a very dominant demographic for Republicans now is white working class voters, and and how are we going to be a party that is responsive to that constituency. And so that is opening up new areas that were previously, I think, forbidden for Republican politicians, particularly around this idea of what constitutes free trade. Um, You know, do we need, you know, have we pursued policies that have actually just gutted the middle class that have, you know, just decimated rural America? You know, is this an approach that we should continue to take, you know, or should we rethink, you know, how we approach these trade deals? Um, it's also opened up a really interesting conversation about how the right approaches unions, yes. which, yeah, which, which I find sort of fascinating. So I work, um, uh, well, I, I'm a contributor to the American compass, which is Oren Cass's group. And I think he, Oren, Oren has been the most outspoken on this idea that, you know, outside of public sector unions, private unions at the local level can provide a strong sort of organizing mechanism for workers, a good sort of community mechanism. I think Senator Josh Hawley has made this point as well. And perhaps the right should, you know, be more friendly to them. And I think this is actually a perfect example of where I think fusionism helps because, you know, there may be a case, and I think Oren actually makes a fairly compelling case for sort of private sector unions in this regard. But I think, you know, it's really good to have, you know, 
sort of either a libertarian impulse or sort of naysayers to say, okay, but union power too concentrated is actually still bad for business, right? And and hurts you know local economies just as much as some of these free free trade policies might, and also engenders corruption. So how do we come up with some kind of policy that addresses that part of what I was what is now our new base, without it falling into the ruts that we know it does? Right. And that I think is is an example of sort of where fusionism can actually imp- impact sort of how the right will move forward with this. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I we read. Uh book one of cast a cast book and i don't remember the name right now but um yeah i like a lot of what he's doing and uh i think that that point hits home for me because i mean most of the voters that i know who are who voted for obama and then voted for trump are are all union guys and maybe that's just a subset of who i know and where i grew up but it it definitely seems like a place that's ripe for opportunity and you know the trade protection can lead into that too Part of it is also like what you said at the beginning, what you write in the uh, in the introduction of the book, is that conservatism is less an ideology and more a way of life, and that means it is flexible, and that means it does learn and adapt, and can look at something that you know we may have once found had a hostile relationship with big labor, but when you look at the little locals, the little platoons of of workers, that sounds a lot like the sort of thing Burke would have recognized i mean in a industrialized form but in you know it's a sort of thing that we're usually talking about we talk about intermediating institutions you know we talk about things that are independent of government and that's that's what the union hall is so i i think there's tons of uh, i'm you know it encourages me to hear you and other people start to say this because i think there's tons of room for growth there and it's uh it's definitely the future of at least a segment of the republican party yeah, I think that's right. And I think but what I think the biggest hurdle is going to be sort of the getting through sort of a generational group of conservatives who have been trained, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> really yeah. trained to say, you know, unions bad, you know, and and that this is a very black and white issue. And you know, I reject that framing on on a lot of issues. I think conservatism is equipped to handle the changing nature of of our social questions, of our social order. Because ultimately, it's concerned with these broad principles. And one of those principles is a strong social order, a strong civil society, um, you know, local communities making decisions uh, with political liberty for what's best for them. And so we are, I think conservatives are, are very equipped to be able to, to sort of pivot under these principles to policies that make sense for the moment they're living in. And I think you're seeing that realignment now more, far more dramatically than I've seen it in my life. But, uh, you know, I the Republican Party as a whole and conservatives also as a part of that have to respond to this changing demographic and this changing sort of, you know, structural elements of their party. And I think this is union membership is a critical is one of them. But I think more broadly, working class uh, issues are going to become much more of a focus for Republicans if they're going to survive. And I don't just mean like, well, tech stocks are doing well, so everyone's doing well. Like right. that that worked mm-hmm. in the 90s, it worked in the 80s, it's not going to work now. And I think the the savvier Republicans are are waking up to that fact. I think this is a good segue into another conversation I ha- wanted to have with you and that is I, I knew you from yeah, obviously you 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 just told us that you worked for the Senate Steering Committee and Senator DeMint has a has a reputation for let's say focusing his energy on, on Republicans at times. And he, he has the famous quote that he'd rather have 
30 Marco Rubios than 60 Arlen Specters in the Senate. And in other words, he'd, he'd rather have 30 pure conservatives than, uh, than 60 squishy Republicans. And, uh, obviously he, and in your career, you've not been afraid at all to ruffle feathers. And obviously he was very involved in heritage action in the Obamacare repeal shutdown situation. And so I, I wonder how, how do you see the movement? I mean, it sounds like you've changed a little bit, but how do, how do you see the, what's, I mean, what's the future of the conservative movement where moving from seven conservatives fund focused on Senator, uh, Senate Republicans and into Trump. And I gather that several of the folks that, that you work with, which is obviously an all-star cast of the conservative partnership Institute. I think several of them have worked in the Trump administration in one capacity or another. I mean, how do you see things evolving and changing in that way, as far as just Republican party and the focus of conservatism moving from the Senate conservative fund to, to today? I, I, that was, that was kind of a wishy-washy question, but I hope, you know, can follow what I'm getting at. (laughs) Yeah. So I think, you know, there's, there's two, there's sort of the conservative movement more broadly sort of as an intellectual focus. And then I think there's the political side of it, which is, I think might you, what you might be getting at, because, you know, I think conservatism sort of of the Jim DeMint era, right. was the tea party era, which is very, yeah, very much focused on spending very much focused on like, you know, earmarks and sort of a rejection of, you know, the Obamacare as the Leviathan of big government. Um, I think that sort of very broadly defined the Tea Party, although I will say the Tea Party, you know, remember, began as sort of a reaction to the bank bailouts, which was partly about spending, but partly about just this hierarchy that exists in our society where, you know, big Wall Street bankers can crater the economy and and not go to jail and get bailed out by the government, right? So yeah. I think people like to make it about society, but I think there's also, or about um, spending, but there was also this element of, I think, sort of class rage that was bubbling that I think led eventually to what I think we're now in, which is sort of the MAGA era, right? You have, yeah. and I do think that there has been a distinct political shift between the two. And you see this because you see that the, members of Congress that are still sort of stuck in the Tea Party era aren't necessarily surviving as well as as they did now that we sort of transitioned to this MAGA era. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you guys remember, there was an episode with um, Senator Ron Johnson where there was a bill going through the Congress that was going to, I think, rename or that was going to add Juneteenth as a federal holiday. And this is like during all of the sort of heyday of the big, uh, big Black Lives Matter riots and protests. Yeah. And Ron Johnson held up the bill and he's like, no, we'll just replace Columbus Day with Juneteenth because it'll save money. And I think that that was like <laughs> really sort of crystallized what I mean by Tea Party senators stuck in the Tea Party era and have not fully pivoted to the MAGA era. Because in the MAGA era, you're like... Ron Johnson, spending doesn't like, matter. <laughs> it's less that spending doesn't matter. And it's it's that when people feel so existentially threatened, and that's been the hallmark of the Trump era is, and I'm not saying Trump caused it. I'm just saying in this era that we're living in, again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that conservatives feel existentially threatened by the cultural institutions, by coronavirus, by rioters literally burning their cities down to to, and no one's doing anything about it, you know, to, you know, Democrats who are just like going to don't think that they should exist if they don't think that like they do. And so when people feel their politicians aren't recognizing those existential threats and are just like, but the deficit, you've lost them. Right. And so I think it, 
there's uh, there mu- there has to be a recognition, I think, of that from our politicians, because people want, especially Republicans, and and that sentiment hasn't changed, right? It's just what they what the base cares about has changed. In the Tea Party era, they wanted to know that their senators were standing up for them against big government, against spending, against the things that they cared about at that time. Right now, when the base feels so threatened by all these other elements, out you know, allied against them, they want to see senators standing up against that because they feel it's a threat to their very way of life. The deficit is still really important and it's important to these voters. But again, it's a matter of emphasis, a matter of prioritization. You know, they want to know, mothers want to know that their son can go to college and not be, you know, will have due process if he, you know, is accused of sexual assault, right? Whereas now all these colleges will just kick him out. Like it's just things like that, that I think are piling on to, to our Republican base and they want to know Republicans are responding to that. And so when, when all Republicans do, well, if in the middle of all of these protests, right, Portland is burning, Kenosha is burning, and Nikki Haley writes an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about the deficit, it's going to sound like you're not paying attention. Do you, does that make sense? It definitely yeah. makes sense. I mean, that was that was a good way to describe it, and and I hadn't really thought about it from that angle, because I have been surprised. You know, uh, I mean, the Freedom Caucus is essentially disbanded. You know, Meadows has gone to work as the chief of staff for the president, and I think President Trump. I, I don't think anyone would disagree with the fact that he's not super worried about debt and spending. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not but, his uh, primary focus. <laughs> but you do make a, a good point. Uh, but I think the follow-on is like, who is the establishment now? You know, and I mean, I think in, in your book, and I I gather from Senator DeMint's career and, and maybe yours also, you're constantly pushing and cajoling and and uh, acting as a sort of a, a, a an itch that needs to be scratched for the establishment. And who is the establishment now? How do you view that? Mm, that's a good question. Are you suggesting that we've become the establishment? <laughs> we've become the thing that we hated? No, no, not at all. In fact, I, I'm, I'm suggesting that there just flat out isn't an establishment. <laughs> There's nothing to find. Yeah. Uh, it needs to be reestablished is what I, I guess is what I think. But Well, I think there's still... Th- so I think the Trump election really did shake the foundations of what was considered sort of establishment republicanism. And you've seen that divide, right? You've seen sort of the never Trump Republicans sort of basically become Democrats. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that's right. You know? And you, you had such a, such a, they had such a incredible influence on the party, all, especially all these neocons who basically were the, in the driver's seat during the Bush administration, George W. Bush, and they've all abandoned and and now they're funding you know d- democratic senate uh, races and it really is appalling but that was what we considered the establishment then right so. yeah i do think though there is a very still of a, a lot of uh, republicans in washington sort of that have been in the city for a long time that are just waiting out the trump administration whether it ends in January or it ends in four years, they're just waiting it out and hoping it ends so they can go back to the way they were doing things. I think that yeah. that, that that element very much still exists in the Republican Party. To- totally um, agree. Yeah. <laughs> and it exists in tension with sort of this new, I don't know what you call it, the new right or like, you know, this sort of intellectual dynamism that's happening right now and they hate it. And they're hoping that that goes away too. So this isn't over, right? Like it's it's very much going, uh, still sort of a dynamic process that's got to work itself out. 
we hit pause, the pause button. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I totally agree that there, uh, there are plenty who are sitting and waiting. I, I guess I don't have a lot of uh, faith that they'll be able to return and sort of uh, regain the reins or whatever. Uh, no, it I seems think like uh, if Trump loses, we have chaos ahead of us, but go ahead. Yeah. Go. I, th- I think they think they can put the genie back in the bottle after four years, but there's, it's all, it's out, you know, it's Pandora's box is open or however you want to describe it. And, uh, I, Things are changing, and even if even if Trump doesn't win re-election, I think there's forces at work. Especially, I, I think the trade issue is huge, and it's not going away, and it shouldn't go away. Even if the the country club types want to, you know, plug up their ears and pretend they can't hear it, it's one of the parties is going to end up protectionist. Uh, probably ours. You know, and yeah, that, I'm. I'm. I think I'm less sanguine that like that element of the party won't try to if they can't put the genie back in the bottle, they'll actively try to kill it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I think there's so much money at stake for these people who have been benefiting from cheap labor, you know, benefiting from sort of all this outsourcing on the trade side. I, I just think that is such a powerful coalition in this city because it's not just Republicans that have been benefiting from it. There's oh, a yeah. lot of big, you know, big business Republic or uh, Democrats that have to. And yeah. so I'm, I am the Trump Trump's election. I think, put a, a cleaved the rock a little bit and let it in sort of paved the way for us to have this conversation. But I'm, I'm worried about kind of what happens to this, this element of the party. If Trump loses, I do think it's good. They're going to try to stamp it out pretty effectively. Yeah. Well, I think we've hit our time, Rachel. That was super fascinating. And obviously uh, you've done some amazing things and, and at the forefront of all these debates. And I encourage all of our listeners to, follow your Twitter feed because it's excellent. And uh, obviously you're a deep thinker on a lot of these issues, both on the philosophical side, as well as the political side. You have any closing thoughts for us? No, I appreciate you guys having me on and that you guys do this podcast because I think it is, like I said, the most intellectually interesting and fascinating time, I think, to be in the conservative movement. And um, I'm really excited to sort of see where it takes us. Likewise. All right. Thank you. That's Rachel Bovard. Catch us next time.